When we look down at our blue planet from outer space, we can really see how much of it is actually covered by water. In fact, it's about 71% of the surface of the planet, most of which is ocean and too salty to drink. And this ocean space is interspersed with big green, brown, and white islands of different shapes. These are our continents, our islands, and our ice caps. This planet didn't always look the way it does now. Our continents were not always where they are now, nor were our ocean basins. And at times, much of our planet was covered in ice. Gwei, hello, and welcome to Utan, our living ocean. I'm your host, Brian Martin, and today we're starting at the beginning. We're going to be looking at two different types of stories from the past. One that comes from clues that geologists get from reading the landscape or chemicals in rocks. And the other is stories, spoken word, passed down from generation to generation. And today we'll be exploring some of the similarities between the geologic history of our planet and comparing it with what some have known for many years through Mi'kmaq legends. In this episode, we have three guests, starting with Dr. Sandra Barr, professor of geology from Acadia University, and she studies some of the oldest rocks in the Maritimes, and will tell us a little bit about how our little corner of the planet formed, including our ocean. We're also going to be speaking with Dr. Ian Spooner, also a geologist from Acadia University, and he mainly studies the younger landforms that were shaped in the last 10 to 20,000 years, or since the last glaciation, looking at change through time. And interspersed with these discussions, we're going to be speaking with Gerald Glode. He's an artist, an educator, and is currently the program development officer with the Mi'kmaq at DeBert Cultural Center. We'll discuss some of the oral histories that have been passed along through generations, some of which have a surprising similarity to the geological history. Now, many of these stories are not mine to tell, so I myself won't talk about them at great length. But if you do want to hear more about them or other stories, I can almost guarantee that there is an elder who'd be willing to chat. Reach out to one of these knowledge holders in your community. As a quick aside, these interviews were all recorded at different times, in different locations, and on different media, and therefore the interviews will sound a bit different, and much of the narrative and the questions had to be re-recorded after the fact, but we've sorted things out after the next episode. So with that, let's dive in. There are many different stories of how the Earth was created. In Western science, the Earth is thought to have been created during the Big Bang over four billion years ago. In much of Christianity, the earth was created by God over a period of seven days. And similarly, according to Mi'kmaq legend, the great spirit Gizuk is the one who made everything. We've got a holy trinity, and it's like um, um, Gizul, Niskam, and Guskat. And when spirituality and Christianity were brought together in 1610, in those first Mi'kmaq that were baptized, and um, that was chief member two and 25 members of his family. They went along because they're like, yeah, they're saying the same thing we're saying, only in a different language. So uh, they went very willingly to Christianity. And because it's like, same story, same belief. It's not the message, or it's not the messenger, it's the message. Sometimes, regardless of our culture or our background, we tell these stories to explain things that are very complicated. So let's see what we can find out. First of all, thanks so much for being here with us, Sandra. If we get started at the most basic part of it, how did the landforms in the Maritimes, in Mi'kma'ki, how did they occur? The landforms uh, in the Maritimes, or the area we call the Maritimes nowadays, have been 
at least two billion years in the making. This area has a very long and exciting geological history, and the landforms that we see today reflect the rocks that underlie the area. It's true that glaciation has had some effect, but overall the landforms are the result of basically the geological history. So at times in the past there were active volcanoes, uh, there were all sorts of uh, times when sea level was higher than now, the land was flooded, sediments were deposited, then it was uplifted and they were eroded away. So uh, the, the topography, the landforms, the harder rocks tend to stand up to higher elevations, the softer rocks tend to underlie those depressions uh, may or may not be covered by water. Okay, so if we zoom through time here from billions of years ago to millions of years ago, and because today we're fortunate to be standing on the edge of it, how did the Bay of Fundy form, a small part of our ocean? That's, that's a long story, uh, <laughs> but I'll try and make it short because it's cold standing here. Uh, the Bay of Fundy, uh, and indeed the Grand Banks, and all the features out along the uh, edge of the present day continent uh, were formed about 200 million years ago when Africa, Europe, and North America started to split apart. They were together before then in a big supercontinent called Pangaea. So there was no ocean where the Atlantic is now. Wait, what? No Atlantic Ocean? All right, keep listening to find out how it got there. And about 200 million years ago, they started to split apart. So the Bay of Fundy formed as a, a subsidiary, a, a side story, if you like, to the main Atlantic Ocean. It was an area of extension where some pull apart occurred, but the main ocean opened out on the outboard side of Nova Scotia. So it's all about plate tectonics, is it? It's all to do with plate tectonics. Let me take a quick pause here. Plate tectonics are incredibly complicated, but very simple to describe. And deep inside the Earth, around 100 kilometers or so, much of our planet is partially molten lava, similar to the stuff that comes out of volcanoes. So everything that we can see at the surface is actually a crust that cooled and is now floating on top of this molten rock, like a skin surrounding the globe. But that crust, the lithosphere, the part that we can see, isn't just one big crust. It's actually broken up into smaller plates that can move around independently, sort of like floating leaves that almost seem connected on the surface of a small pond. But we're talking big plates here. There are only around seven major plates in the world, and then some smaller ones and inactive ones. And these plates, these big chunks of land and seafloor, are actually moving between 2 and 15 centimeters per year, either away from each other or crashing together. And this is how mountains are built when two continental plates slowly collide over millions of years and they lift up one another, similar as the Himalayas are still doing today. There's also slip fractures between plates, either ones moving side to side or simply up and down with one getting slightly lodged beneath the other. And these can happen very slowly over millions of years or quite rapidly in the matter of moments. An example of this type of fault is the Colbequid-Shedabucto fault system near Parsboro, Nova Scotia. And thankfully, the plate boundaries in the Maritimes are no longer active, as the boundaries between plates can lead to earthquakes. But when they were active, the fault near Parsboro certainly did lift a portion of the land quite significantly, enough to change the course of a river. And this is actually quite similar to the, one of the stories that it said 
that the great and powerful Glooskap could build mountains out of plains and change the course of rivers if it suited him. Let's see what Gerald has to say on that. You're talking about building mountains out of plains. You're talking about plate tectonics. Exactly. Pressure pushing, popping up. That's that two-wide scene part. And changing the course of rivers, of course, when there is plate tectonics that do push, like in the um, Cape Shikmecto area, we've got legends and stories that talk about the days the rivers ran backwards. And again, it's a change of elevation that changed the flow of the water. And um, things did run backwards. Then you got science saying, yeah, that did freaking happen. That, you know, that, that wasn't just a, a mythical story of one of Blue's Cap's um, accomplishments or achievements or something that he did. It's like, no, it really did happen here in Nova Scotia. Now, as we'll continue to see, the stories and the legends are often not so different than the scientific explanations, displaying that the Mi'kmaq were, and continue to be, incredibly in tune with the natural world, and that some of these oral traditions may have been passed down for much longer than we can even imagine. Now let's get back to the ocean, shall we? Sandra, can you tell us how oceans are formed, and are, are they all formed in a similar way? Oh yes, all oceans form in exactly the same way. It's been a remarkably persistent feature of Earth history for billions of years. So what happens out there when continents split apart, uh, areas, uh, the extension enables hot melted material to rise up from inside the Earth and it comes out at or near the surface and produces what we call ocean crust. As a side note, this is exactly what's happening right now in the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, somewhere halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, going all the way down past South America. And you can actually see this spreading happening above water in Iceland. You should look it up if you can. And in essence, Europe and Canada are actually moving away from each other at around 2.5 centimeters per year. This crust is thinner and more dense than the uh, crust that underlies the continents, and that's why it stays down there at a lower elevation. All of the world's oceans, 75% of the, the Earth, are covered by crust of that type. So have we ever lost an ocean? It loses oceans. They go through a process that we call subduction, where the uh, ocean part, being heavier and denser and thinner, actually sinks back down underneath the continental part. But every time an ocean disappears in that way, a new ocean forms somewhere else, because the Earth stays the same size. So we lose one ocean, and we gain another somewhere else. So in, in modern geography, we talk about the one ocean concept, where all the ocean basins are interconnected. The Arctic with the Pacific, with the Atlantic, with the Indian, with the Southern. So is there evidence of a time when there was more than one interconnected ocean? The Earth's had oceans almost since the beginning. The Earth formed about four and a half billion years ago. There's evidence from the kinds of rocks that we see uh, with ages more than four billion years, they were deposited in oceans. They were deposited in ocean water. And so the Earth's had oceans for a long, long time. They were probably initially more extensive even than today's oceans because over time the continents, the continental part of the Earth has been growing larger. So the Earth has always had oceans. And yes, I would say they have always been 
interconnected because of the way in which they form. It's a fundamental, well, it's the most basic part of plate tectonics. It's the starting point for plate tectonics. So Gerald, while discussing another story, actually touched on this as well. Uh, there's a few stories in there of transformation and a few stories of, uh, of definitely culture. There's stories and reference about um, him building a dam in the Bay of Funde that caused flooding in one area and caused drought in another. Is this the same beaver? Is yeah, the same? Oh, well, same family of beavers or whether it was the right. same nation or tribe of beavers. And uh, again, all the animals went complaining to Glooscap. Glooscap went to the beaver and the beaver said, this is my way of life and like, uh, it doesn't really concern me and they're going to have to deal whatever whether ever happens. But Glooscap went and recruited the power of a whale to come and bust up this large beaver dam and um, just set the waters free so everybody could have access to the waters. And uh, that supposedly happened at a place called um, uh, Driftwood Haven, which is in West Advocate Beach. And if you see it, it's just like four kilometer long beach of driftwood. And of course, here in Nova Scotia, we got the world's highest tide coming in twice a day, every day. And it's pulling in debris and material from the ocean currents that flow. And the unique thing about this beach is you can find driftwood from every continent on the planet. You can find wood from China, from Africa, from South America. Any tree that falls in the water that gets taken out into this current flows by Nova Scotia. And the world's highest tide sucks it into this beach twice a day. So that shows you've got uh, one ocean. Oh yeah, and even connected. definitely, and even when we talk about the uh, Aboriginal people that create crafts and arts out of them, uh, every time you go there, you're running into another Aboriginal artist who's collecting material there. I, as a carver, used to go there to get pieces for my songbird vases and different carvings that I did. And I found this piece of wood that had, it almost had like a hologram effect. As you twisted the wood, it would change its view, like the summer wood and the winter wood. Um, the crystallization of that sap wood had an amazing characteristic to it. And working for natural resources for 25 years, I took it to some of my um, friends at work. And I asked, what kind of tree is this? And uh, they said, where'd you get it? And I said, well, I've got a Driftwood Haven. And they said, buddy, if you found it there, it can come from anywhere in the planet. <laughs> and then We're now going to zoom forward in time again by a few more million years to around 20,000 years ago when kilometers of ice covered this part of the world just as people were beginning to arrive and populate areas that would have previously been inhospitable. Post, uh, we were basically the first ones to thaw out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? And, yeah, and again, that glacial ice is starting to recede farther north, uh, warming up. Plants and vegetation are kicking in. Animals are following the plants, and people are following the migrating herds. And ending up here, thirteen thousand three hundred years ago, people are where you come from. We moved in here. We stayed. We called this place Migamagi, and we called ourselves Migamag people or Alnu people, more so. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here because we're going to chat about this with an archaeologist in the next episode. So back to the ice. Now, as the ice was receding, sea levels were fluctuating widely at that time on the order of tens of meters on a relatively short time frame, both up and down depending on the location 
due to the weight of the glaciers pressing or no longer pressing on land. And although the Annapolis Valley in Nova Scotia was flooded with seawater after the glaciers retreated over a period of hundreds, if not thousands of years, this event occurred around 14,000 years ago and was not likely the flood that spurred the story of Glue's Cap and the Beaver. That story begins with the great beaver who had placed a great dam near the Minas Basin, flooding Glue's Cap's garden. So Mi'kmaq legend um, talks about Glue's Cap, whale and beaver, and there being a dam across the Minas Basin, perhaps somewhere from Cape Split to around Parsbury area. And then that dam being broken and the Minas Basin flooding and possibly the Annapolis Valley flooding as well. There's certainly evidence for that occurring, uh, but it probably didn't lead to a lot of flooding in the Annapolis Valley as we know it now. What it led to was a lot of flooding did occur in the Minas Basin, the intertidal regions of the Minas Basin. We have a lot of evidence for that flooding. So both the legend and the history of the area, the, the natural history of the area, really support a a pretty massive event happening probably around 4,000 years ago. Interestingly enough, when humans first came to the area, as shown in the archaeological record, there were indeed giant beavers here. Yep, Castorides ohioensis is his Latin name, and he's about seven feet tall and close to a thousand pounds. Uh, incisor was about nine inches long when you consider wow. the size of a beaver's tooth today. So he was quite an amazing animal and it's a character that uh, we have in a lot of our legends. Of course the most famous one would be the legend of five islands where Glooscap had a battle with uh, another Mi'kma'su, another uh, god who um, was sort of mocking the powers of Glooscap and had changed and transformed into a beaver. And uh, The battle had originally started in Cape Breton and the first rock that was thrown basically broke Cape Breton Island off of mainland Nova Scotia at the causeway. (laughs) Then the battle sort of ran on into the waters of Turo where he went into the water and swam up to five islands where the legendary five stones were thrown. He swam up a little farther to Partridge Island where um, his grandmother's island was and sort of mocking him right at the campsite of his grandmother. And Booscap sort of ran him off across into Blomidon, where the battle ended. And uh, the story says that Booscap uprooted a tree and he pulled the branches off, just like taking the little bushes off of a little one. And the root plate, that basically became the transformation of the Wabanaki War Club, was a sort of tree with the root plate on the bottom and all sharpened off into spikes. Said that Booscap. Um, fighting this other Migomasu who had turned into a beaver, this giant beaver, every time he struck him, he reduced in size by half. But then there was two of them. Then he struck those two pieces and then became four. So every time it got smaller and smaller until the, the animal was small enough for him to stomp. And he literally stomped all these little pieces of the beaver, getting rid of the giant beavers, And the last two ones, he just missed, and he squashed their tail and made their tails flat. (laughs) And they said that before before the beavers that we have today with the known flat tail, uh, the beavers, the giant beavers, they had the tail of a muskrat, which was a long, hairless sort of uh, tail like the muskrats have today. So... 
Oh, I really love that story. And there's another really interesting story that caught my ear from a paleogeology or a geography point of view, was that of Glooscap and Old Man Winter. When we talk about Glooscap having a battle with the god of winter, losing this battle where it was winter here year round, and Glooscap had to take our people south. And they migrated south, they recruited the goddess of summer to come back to battle winter. And um, yeah, we have all this stuff. And um, yeah, that definitely confirms again through True I'd See and that this story that we had um, still had actual things embedded in the story that can be translated to um, a time period that our transition had gone through or part of the changing uh, place of Nova Scotia had gone through. So, so Ian, when someone first hears that story, it seems... It seems like just that, a story. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, Gerald Glode was the one who shared that one with me. Yeah. Yeah. But in the climate record, there is in fact evidence of such an event occurring, a very long-lasting winter, is there not? Something that scientists have named the Younger Dryas event. So what exactly was that? So the Younger Dryas event was an extraordinary period in in Earth history. It occurred about 12,500 years ago, calendar years, so our years. And... um, during that time, ice advanced. In Nova Scotia, we have great records of the little ice caps that were still existing around that time advanced. And it was quite extraordinary. And, and in DeBert, uh, you know, ice advanced there. And, and what was really quite a nice climate became almost Arctic uh, at that time over a period of maybe as little as 50 years. So to people at the time, it would have been an extraordinary event. And it would have been noticed. It might have even cause people to to react I wouldn't say in panic but it would have been distressful things would have changed at a, a speed never before seen so I think the young dryas might have had a very significant effect on people habitation patterns uh, how people fed and housed themselves at that time it was really something quite extraordinary now would that have been a one-time occurrence from hot to cold and then back to whatever you know normal was so the folks who lived here since deglaciation have really experienced extraordinary changes over both long scale and short uh, scale time periods. And what about the archaeological record of that disappearance? After Younger Dryas and the abandonment of DeBert, uh, Paleo-Indian culture disappeared yeah. and then picked up with the archaic culture back around uh, 35, 3800 years ago. And so I talked to the First Nations people I deal with about that great hiatus where we have really no record of anything. It might be out here in the water because sea level is different, but it should be on land because we certainly have archaic woodland sites up in Gaspar Lake that are incredibly prolific. So if archaic peoples were using those environments, why weren't the pre-archaic uh, folks also using those environments? Why, were they, why would they just have been anchored to a shoreline that is now flooded. So that great hiatus from an archeological point of view really fascinates me. And uh, why it occurred, I do not know, but the flooding I don't think would have been fast enough to, now, to kill everybody. That's quite amazing how a story like that could be passed along for such a long time. And I'm gonna ask Gerald what his thoughts are on that. You know, why are some of these legends the same as we know from the geological history? some of which date back 
thousands of years. Is it actually possible that these stories were passed along for that many generations? Yeah, you definitely see evidence of the traditional knowledge and ecological knowledge embedded in these stories. And they literally do go back thousands of years. When we talk about um, Glooscap losing a battle with the god of winter, and you go to the Museum of Natural History or you go up to the Funday Geological Museum, and they talk about events that that did happen 6,000 years ago or 8,000 years ago. Um, we've got stories of giant beavers that used to exist here. And um, the giant beaver did exist here. They're finding the remains of them. I think there was four remains found on eastern shores of North America. Uh, Latin name, of course, Castorides ohioensis. And they say that he died off some um, 8,000 years ago. So it's like there are words in our language that talk about animals that used to exist here. Like even um, words for like what we would call today an elephant. It's like bustagobajit. And when you break that word down in a verb-based language, bustagobajit means the skin of the trunks of trees, like the bark on the trees. Right. And if you look at an elephant, the skin on there looks like the bark of trees. Yeah. And it's like, why would they have a name for something that didn't exist here? And the, like, the reason why, like, you know, some of these legends are um, that we know, it's like because our people were here when these transitions were made. And it is scientific evidence that is confirming this cultural memory timeline that, yeah, we lived here during those periods of change and that those events that happened were actually something that would go down in history. And when you talk about um, plate tectonics, where you've got areas being ri risen in a matter of a short period of time, that created water flows in an opposite direction. And then you got saying, science saying, that happened here in Nova Scotia 6,000 years ago. Well, the uh, archeological evidence say that we've been here for 13,300, which goes back to the last glaciation. And these stories are just accounts of things that actually happened. So nobody and, wrote this down. Like, no. This is just grandpa or, or oral grandma, histories past or father, literally just spoken words. Mm -hmm. wow. Now, as scientists start paying more attention to more of these legends, do you think that we'll start seeing more of these similarities between legend and science? Oh, there's a name for that. Or there's, right. we've been talking about this for, for centuries, for, for millennia. Well, unfortunately, people who have been listening to our stories for years thought they were something that we just created to amuse our children or something that was just created for storytelling or fancy, but they were actually actual occurrences that happened here. And when we talk about animals that no longer exist, or when we talk about places that have changed, uh, it's like science is confirming these now, and it gives a reason. Like, you know, when I look at a cultural significant story that takes me to a cultural significant location, that's very, very specific because materials are created in these locations under specific conditions. And then when you find cultural significant material found at these sites, that, that's no coincidence. It was actually like the 
objective of our ancestors to teach the children that were yet to come where to go to find the resources they needed in order to survive. Right. So that's, yeah, it's definitely more than coincidence. And other natures, uh, nations are finding the same things. It's like, you know, even all over the planet Earth, not just our, our Aboriginal nations here, but other indigenous nations who have traditional stories. Right. And um, yeah, you're definitely going to see more because people are looking harder <laughs> that what why did they tell the story why did why was this place so significant is there anything about the ocean about our connection with the ocean that you'd like to finish with um i actually just went to a uh, conference and it was a fisheries conference held in halifax at the western and i did a presentation on um the Mi'kmaq connection to the waters and even when it comes to our coastal communities all around the shorelines, our communities that were around the riverway, 80% of our entire sustenance came from the waters. And even when you look at a verb-based language, the names that our ancestors has given specific things, that's what we have now for Mi'kmaq language, is the gift from our ancestors. You look at ourselves, like, you know, man, man and woman, and that's Ebik Akjinam. Jinam comes from Jimit. Jimit is the man who sets. It literally translates to he paddles. And we talk about ebit, which is ebit. It relates to a woman, which means she sits. She sits in the front of the canoe navigating for rocks and stumps and shallow water. And he sits in the back paddling. So our ancestors' very name for men and women came from our relationships to the water. And definitely water people, uh, coastal people, that 80% sustenance of everything from the fish to the shellfish, uh, even finding like, you know, uh, thousands of years of um, debris in the form of shell middens all over the province, like, you yeah. know, different locations where our people had a communal dumping ground for all of their shells. And in the decomposition part of shell decomposition, they actually seal themselves. So when you go in there, you'll find evidence of other things, a lot of um, things that the earth would have claimed, like um, anything like bone or wood or any sinew or stuff. Uh, if you go into a shell midden, you'll find of evidence of things that lasting thousands more years. Um, you go down to Thomas Riddell Park, they found the leg bones of deer and they were drilled with holes and they believed that they were Mi'kmaq flutes made from the leg bones of deers, and they've been radiocarbon dated at 17 to 1800 years ago. Wow. So that's almost 2,000 years of flute music being embedded in this. And again, that's through the shells and the protection of what you're finding inside them. But the connection to the water, there's so many stories that relate to the water and so many words, and even in that verb-based language that relate to our water. It's it's definitely more of a cultural thing. It's more, it's, it's even spiritual. So why is it important to have a healthy ocean? Oh, because like I said, that there is definitely the integrate part of the life cycle. So many things come from the ocean. Uh, even the animals that walk the earth today originated, like, you know, many, many thousands of years ago from the water and the elements of the water. Uh, even ourselves, 
Numsid Noguma. It's like uh, all of our relations. Uh, they say that that's such a pagan belief, but it's like, is it really? It's like, when I'm done with this body, you can take this carcass into the lab. You're going to find out I'm 67% water. <laughs> Waterogen is hydrogen and oxygen. It comes from the air. It's like there's magnesium in me. There's potassium in me. There's carbon in me. It's like everything in our environment is in me. And because we've been living here for thousands of years, everything we consume becomes a part of us. And like I said, that carbon that's in a blade of grass, the carbon that's in the grasshopper, that's eaten by the bird, that's eaten by the animal that I eat, and then I die, compose, enrich the soil to grow the plants that feed the bugs, that feed the birds. <laughs> it's like a never-ending cycle and pattern. And again, it all in, involves that water cycle. And when it comes to even like you know, everything from evaporation in the summertime to rainfall and the water cycle itself that we have here, um, cycles are important to our culture because it was unlocking all of these secrets that are involved in these cycles. And cycles are reflective of a circle and circles in Aboriginal culture are sacred. So that's a big part of that connection to our oceans and water cycles and life cycles and animals. It's like, yeah, it's definitely a given. We can't live without it. And like I said, we've lived here for thousands of years without money, but you can't live three days without water. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That tells you where it sits on the importance level. <laughs> it's not always about the dollar. So long after our interview was over, Gerald and I were talking about language and how that's so important in a culture, in any culture really. And Gerald enlightened me with one more story, although a much more recent one. Well, even when we went down to Thomas Riddell Park, we were there at the Shell Middens at Port Jolly and Port Jolly or whatever the French version of Port Jolly is, mine's very anglified. But we had Matthew Betts who was studying the Shell Middens and he was talking about the types of uh, animals that were coming from the shell meetings. And he's saying, we're finding a huge variety of shellfish. He said, one thing that we don't have is mussels. He said, why don't we have mussels? And one of our elders just said, you don't eat your food's food. And he said, what? He said, the Mi'kmaq word for eel is gada. The Mi'kmaq word for mussels is gadula. Gadula means the one the eel likes to eat. So we didn't eat the mussel shells, we left them for the eels. Now that, like you said, through language and like your French Acadian language, it's like that would have been lost without that connection. And that's what they said was, eels were more important to us and we can get our shellfish and nutrition from all these other ones but save the muscles for the eels. And like an and that's cultural, and it's embedded right in the language. And here you got an archaeologist digging up, like, why? He's got this question, why did you do it? And just, as, I know, and again, as simple as an elder saying, you don't eat your food's food. <laughs> it's, it's so like, is that what la means? Yeah, it's like, uh, like yeah, the one that he likes to eat. So, yeah. Oh. Yeah. And that's and, uh, yeah, it was a pretty amazing moment there. And then he was like, boom, just see a light bulb turn on in his head. And I was like, that's awesome. 
Well, there we have it. Although we could go on for hours, that'll have to conclude our episode for today. Thank you so much to all our guests today. We certainly couldn't do this without you. And I look forward to continuing on this journey as next time we explore the archaeological evidence of the importance of the ocean to the Mi'kmaq. Until next time, Walalio. Injured well, anchoring and lying low. Injured well. Executive producers for the Utan Our Living Ocean series are Roger Hunter and Vanessa Mitchell, with the episodes produced by the Maritime Aboriginal People's Council. Narrative and editing by your host, Brian Martin. Today's special guests were Drs. Sandra Barr and Ian Spooner from Acadia University, as well as the extremely well-versed Gerald Glode. The song Broken Read in English, written by George Edward Chevry, performed by Colin Johnson, translated and performed in Mi'kmaq by Elder and Catherine Sorby. Production support provided by the Government of Canada, specifically Transport Canada's Indigenous and Local Communities Engagement and Partnership Program through Canada's Ocean Protection Plan. All rights reserved. coming to heal your water Injured well, can you hear the eagle cry high above the storms of your